barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Michael Mulligan. How are you? I'm doing great. Ready to clear up all legal ambiguity. <laughs> all right, or at least attempt to do so at the time provided. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> so the B.C. Court of Appeal has made a ruling on a conservation officer who refused to kill bear cubs and was dismissed once upon a time. And indeed, I've had many interactions with Mr. Bryce Cassavan over the years. I find him to be a very well-spoken and moral uh, man. I'm interested to hear your take on this case. Yes, this has had a, a uh, long legal history in addition to, of course, the interesting sort of ethical and moral issues surrounding, you know, how are we to deal with things like bears eating garbage. Um, and uh, no doubt, as uh, most li listeners will be aware, this is a fellow who was employed as a conservation officer. He was uh, ordered to go and uh, destroy, uh, I think, mother bear and two cubs uh, on the basis that they had been eating garbage. Uh, it turned out that only the mother bear had been eating garbage, and he refused to uh, uh, order to kill the two cubs, uh, and instead, instead took them up to a um, uh, vet uh, who eventually uh, took them to a recovery center, and they were released into the wild. Um, he had uh, apparently in the past uh, uh, not followed uh, other directions to shoot uh, animals. Uh, there apparently was another incident back in um, 2015 uh, where he was instructed to uh, shoot a cougar uh, that was uh, captured in a live uh, trap, uh, but he uh, didn't follow that order and instead took a video of the cougar, which escaped. So with that background, uh, he was uh, amounted to dismissed. They transferred him or tried to transfer him to a position where he would no longer be a conservation officer, and that amounted to a dismissal. Um, he took issue with that. Uh, and uh, the matter started as a, um, he was a union member, uh, and eventually the matter, the case wound up in front of the Labor Relations Board. Um, at that point, he didn't have a lawyer helping him, which was a little unfortunate, um, and uh, he uh, wound up, uh, the transfer that amounted to a dismissal, uh, wound up being upheld by the Labor Relations Board. He then got a lawyer. Uh, the lawyer did things including uh, making a freedom of information request to reveal some other internal reports that uh, suggested uh, reasons for his dismissal. Uh, and the lawyer then also uh, realized that it, the Labor Relations Board may have had no jurisdiction to deal with the matter of his dismissal because as a uh, conservation officer, he was a peace officer uh, under the uh, Provincial Police Act. And as uh, you'll, everyone, of course, will recall, there is a specialized and uh, rather uh, uh, intricate process for the discipline or dismissal of a police officer all the way up to police chief. Indeed. Yeah. So the lawyer then said, well, look, the Labor Relations Board didn't have jurisdiction to deal with this. This was something that should have been handled under the Police Act, uh, to which uh, originally a, a judge, a single judge in the Supreme Court said, well, um, he should have raised that at the time, at the time when he didn't have a lawyer back in front of the Labor Relations Board. Uh, but uh, the Court of Appeal, uh, having now reviewed that decision, concluded that no, the Labor Relations Board did not have jurisdiction, um, and the fact that this man, without a lawyer, didn't use the sort of language talking about lack of jurisdiction uh, back when he was on his own in front of the Labor Relations Board wasn't determinative, and, and uh, all of this process was ill-conceived in the wrong forum, uh, and all should have been under the Police Act. Um, all of that was complicated by the fact that in the course of all this, uh, sort of a settlement was reached uh, with respect to his dismissal. So 
What's now been determined uh, by the Court of Appeal uh, is that he was not properly dismissed. The Labor Relations Board did not have jurisdiction to do what they did. He should have been dealt with under the Police Act because he was a peace officer. Uh, and all of what went on for the past number of years was just completely ill-considered and wrong. Um, all of that, of course, got off on the wrong foot uh, because uh, he didn't have anyone helping him to give him advice on things like, hey, maybe you're under the police act, this might be the wrong forum, and how on earth is uh, somebody supposed to uh, come to that uh, conclusion and use uh, that language on their own? So um, I suppose what we can say now is he can keep his head held high and say, look, he was not properly dismissed. He did not have the sort of hearing that uh, he should have been uh, provided uh, on the basis that uh, his uh, dismissal was with respect to his behavior uh, as a peace officer. He wasn't being uh, dismissed for, you know, being late for a staff meeting or something. Uh, he was being dismissed on the basis that he didn't follow this order to kill the bear cubs uh, when he took the position that that was contrary to uh, the policy of the province. Um, he took that position because the determination was the bear cubs weren't eating garbage. <laughs> um, it may have been the mother that was, but the bear cubs weren't. Um, and so uh, he can hold his head high and say he was not properly dismissed. Uh, and this may not be the end of the legal odyssey because it's been complicated by the fact that in the interim there was a, a resolution of it. All of this, of course, is uh, interesting stuff, not only in terms of the bear cub and the conservation officer and how that should have been handled, but of course in the context uh, of all of the discussion following uh, George Floyd's uh, killing in the United States uh, with respect to um, how peace officers ought to be disciplined or not disciplined and what uh, protections uh, they ought to be afforded as a result of their role. Hmm. Um, and you'll recall at the time when the, the former police chief here was being dealt with, there was much discussion about whether the Police Act process for discipline is an appropriate one, yes. whether it may be overly convoluted. Um, uh, and uh, there are all kinds of good issues there to be considered. Uh, in our Canadian context, we have a very different regime than that which exists in the United States, for example. Yes. Right? There, there's been discussion now in the United States about things like, do you need to ban uh, chokeholds? Yes. Right? And so when might that be permitted? In Canada, the, the criminal code, both the criminal code and the police act, afford some special protections to somebody who's operating or acting as a peace officer uh -huh. uh, to protect them from being sued or uh, charged criminally. Uh, and there are some protections that deal with when a peace officer could use force that is intended to or likely to cause death or grievous bodily harm, which I think most people would agree cutting off somebody's air supply for eight or nine minutes is certainly in the category of something that's likely to kill somebody. Absolutely. Uh, and so in Canada, uh, and this is pursuant to Section 25 of the Criminal Code, a peace officer is only permitted to use force that is intended to or likely to cause death or grievous bodily harm if the peace officer believes on reasonable grounds that it is necessary for self-preservation of the, themselves or the preservation uh, of someone under the peace officer's protection from death or grievous bodily harm. Would that include all members of the public? I think so. Okay. I think probably in an immediate way. Okay. Right? Uh, you know, if a police if you see one person, you know, if a police officer sees a man holding a, a gun ready to shoot somebody, yes. right? The police officer would be permitted to shoot the individual to protect 
the person that was being aimed at from death or grievous bodily harm. Okay, so there doesn't but, have to be a declaration of someone being under the peace officer's protection first. That's true. Now, there's an interesting little one uh, that I just refreshed myself on, dealing with special powers to deal with people escaping from a penitentiary. Yes. There's an interesting exception in sub-5 of Section 25 of the Criminal Code that permits uh, a peace officer, and that would include in that context like a, a jail guard, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, from, it would permit the use of um, force that is likely to cause death or grievous bodily harm to prevent an inmate escaping from a penitentiary if the peace officer believes on reasonable grounds that any of the inmates in the penitentiary pose a threat of death or grievous bodily harm to the peace officer or any other person, and if the escape can't be prevented by reasonable means in a less violent manner. And so that section's been there for some time, uh, but, um, you know, you may have seen in the movies or things sort of guard towers and guards with guns. Yes. There is some special power uh, that would permit, for example, if there was no other reasonable means to prevent the escape, uh, somebody who is an inmate escaping from a penitentiary could end up being shot and killed um, if the person doing the shooting and killing is a peace officer and if they believe that any of the inmates in the penitentiary uh, could be a threat to uh, pose a threat of death or grievous bodily harm to anyone. Wow. Um, and so um, that would authorize that sort of use of deadly force if there wasn't some other way to prevent an escape. Um, I suppose on the theory that, look, if you see somebody in an orange jumpsuit going over the wall, um, you may not know, is that the, you know, person in for the, uh, you know, the serial killer, or is that the person um, who's uh, awaiting trial on their, um, you know, fraud charge, yes, right? Yes, um, And so there is some special power there. But the, the takeaway here is that in Canada, there is only that uh, protection for police officers to use force that's intended or likely to cause death or grievous bodily harm uh, if it is reasonably necessary to protect yourself or somebody else from death or grievous bodily harm. You can't do it because it makes it more convenient to load the person into the back of the police cruiser uh, if you're able to render them unconscious. Um, it can only be used uh, in those very limited purposes, uh, and if you, uh, as a peace officer, were to use that kind of force uh, for some other reason, you would not enjoy the protections uh, that would be otherwise available to you in the criminal code. Thank you for that information, Michael. I think our audience will find it very beneficial as we navigate this sometimes turbulent debate, animated, of course, by the awful incident involving George Floyd in the United States. Want to take a quick break? We will continue our conversation with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers right after this. And we are all listening to Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, anything else before we move on to the latest on the B.C. Civil Resolution Tribunal? Um, well, another thing I think people should be aware of in terms of special protections that are afforded to uh, peace officers uh, in Canada, in addition to some of the ones we just talked about that are protections against the possibility of uh, criminal prosecution uh, for uh, the use of force, uh, we do also have uh, in uh, British Columbia, um, pursuant to the Police Act, uh, some special protections that would prevent a peace officer from being uh, personally liable uh, for uh, harm they might uh, cause. Uh, in many cases, there is liability for the uh, municipality that employs the police officer, but of course for that, there are often really short fuse limitation periods. And we talked about a case uh, a few weeks ago where a person lost out because 
they hadn't uh, quickly enough notified the municipality. Yes. The police officer personally was liable. Uh, and in terms of civil liability, we excuse police officers from personal liability uh, broadly in British Columbia unless there's a finding that the peace officer acted dishonestly with gross negligence uh, or engaged in malicious or willful misconduct uh, or for libel or slander. So in addition to the uh, protections we afford here uh, for criminal prosecution, there are also some restrictions on when a peace officer could be uh, civilly liable uh, for uh, activity they engage in in the course of their employment, even if, for example, you were to find that a peace officer was negligent as opposed to grossly negligent, uh, they wouldn't wind up being personally uh, responsible for uh, a loss. So there are some, I think, interesting issues there for debate in terms of public policy and what might encourage um, good behavior. Uh, but uh, just to be aware, there are some special uh, provisions there as well as with respect to criminal prosecution. You and I have discussed in the past British Columbia Civil Resolution Tribunal, not a court per se, but a dispute resolution mechanism that was originally envisioned, at least my understanding, was solving things like strata disputes, not quite small claims court, i.e. you can go to a website and fill out a form and have a, a, some sort of a dispute adjudicated. I know what it's been expanded to deal with many ICBC cases, and I know you and I have also discussed, I think it was General Rule 20 involving counsel being able to be retained. What's the latest on that? Yes, well, you're quite right. This, this was a thing, I think it was sort of modeled on things like a PayPal dispute, right? Okay. You know, to fill out like an online form, click some little circular buttons, type into a window what's wrong with your item, uh, and then have somebody resolve it. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it dealt originally with the strata disputes, things like, you know, fighting over whether you should be allowed to have a barbecue on the patio or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then they expanded it to deal with uh, very small, small claims cases, sort of up to $5,000. Um, and there may well be, a, I think, a good rationale for sort of a dispute resolution process sort of in keeping with the scale of the dispute, right? Uh, maybe if we're fighting over a barbecue, we don't need to engage the court process. But the problem becomes once this, that sort of a, a process that has modest um, sort of procedural protections and fairness issues associated with it starts expanding into things that are a bigger deal than whether you can have a barbecue or not. Yes. Uh, it's becoming, it may become a particular problem in the context of uh, trying to move ICBC disputes to it because the people that make the decisions are not independent like a judge would be, right? A judge can't be fired if the province doesn't like the decision made about an ICBC dispute, whereas the people that work for the Civil Resolution Tribunal making these decisions are on contracts that may or may not be renewed. Uh -huh. uh, and so the people working there are really on a bit of a leash. Now, there's a recent decision from the uh, Court of Appeal with respect to the Civil Resolution Tribunal that reveals another I think, serious problem in terms of how it, its legislation is organized and in terms of how that legislative authority is being exercised. The issue here started out with a, a strata dispute, and it was a uh, person living in a condo uh, that was uh, trying to use the Civil Resolution Tribunal to get compensation from the strata corporation uh, over a $700 dispute for repairs to a patio uh, combined with uh, a claim for $300 in costs, and I like this one, $25,000 for the loss of enjoyment of life, threats, abuse, and stress. Huh. Um, now, I, I presume the uh, fact that you might be uh, you know, see, see fit to have to bring a claim 
for $25,000 in loss of enjoyment of life, threats, abuse, and stress is probably not something in the marketing brochure for the uh, you know condo development or whatever originally went on sale. No. But so <laughs> that's what the claim was about. Um, must have been quite a problem with the patio. But the the Strata Corporation faced with this claim. Uh, wanted to have a lawyer help them. Uh-huh. Uh, and the problem is that somebody, for reasons that escape me, thought it was a good idea when they drafted the uh, legislation for the Civil Resolution Tribunal to require, in most cases, that a person get permission to be able to have a lawyer help them. Yes. Uh, unless somebody is a child or is found to have an impaired capacity, um, you need to actually ask permission for a lawyer to be able to help you, which is a pretty head-scratching and strange state of affairs. Why in the world would you want to stop somebody from getting legal help, right? Like, like we saw in that uh, case concerning the conservation officer, sometimes some early legal help is going to avoid years of problems. Mm-hmm. But that's how the legislation is structured. And in this case, the Strata Corporation asked to be able to have a lawyer help them to defend this claim for twenty-five or $26,000. One of these adjudicators said, no, you can't have a lawyer help you. Uh, and that uh, difficult-to-comprehend decision layered on top of it being difficult to comprehend why you would even have that authority uh, resulted in the case then going all the way up to the B.C. Court of Appeal, uh, who just determined that that decision was an unreasonable one. The Strata Corporation should have been permitted to have a lawyer help them uh, when the uh, adjudicator person uh, sort of dismissed their request for a, to be allowed to have their own lawyer help them, uh, talking about things like, oh, this is just a you know standard sort of dispute. Um, that was viewed as an unreasonable decision, and so back this thing will go for another hearing all of this over, uh, it seems to me, like a completely ill-considered uh, process that would uh, permit somebody to not have a lawyer help them. It just uh, doesn't make any sense. What is the standard of review for decisions made by the, the CRT? I can't remember. It's going to be like any administrative decision, right? It's going to be reviewed on a reasonableness okay. threshold. Uh, and originally, when that decision was reviewed uh, and went to the B.C. Supreme Court, Uh, the Supreme Court judge used sort of deference in saying, well, you know, this was within the range of reasonable possible outcomes given the nature of the legislation, that kind of a deferential approach, which is typically how uh, administrative uh, decisions are reviewed. But uh, the Court of Appeal had none of that uh, and found that um, that was an error uh, and the uh, tribunal had uh, misapprehended the nature of the dispute and the decision was unreasonable. And, of course, these things are going to be colored by virtue of the fact that the starting point of refusing to allow somebody to get legal help, just uh, on the face of it, is uh, uh, that's uh, pretty difficult to understand why you would ever want to have a, uh, a judicial scheme in place that would not permit somebody to have their uh, hire a lawyer to help them with it. So all of a head-scratcher. My takeaway from this would be the province should probably amend the Civil Resolution Tribunal Act and remove the, uh, the whole provision that would uh, ever permit them to uh, not allow a person to have a, or a strata corporation to have a lawyer and help them. It just makes no sense. I wonder if the provision was designed to prevent asymmetry of power if one party did have counsel and the other party could not afford or did not retain counsel, and that might be seen as unfair. Because I don't, I don't see a purpose for that provision. Well, I mean, how does that solve it? You yeah, know, I guess, somebody yeah. who's very sophisticated and experienced on one side of it, and the other person could be 
naive and inexperienced uh, and not know how to handle the process and the the inexperienced person would be told i'm sorry you, you can't have a lawyer do this for you you must go in with whatever degree of experience and knowledge you've got good luck to you and that just doesn't make any sense no. it's not a provision that would involve paying for the lawyer or requiring a person to have a lawyer it's literally a provision that would stop a person from if they think it's necessary hiring their own lawyer to help them and why you would ever want to prevent uh, the lawyer from being able to uh, conduct this sort of a thing just strikes me as uh, bizarre and i think it really needs a a rethink and the legislation needs to get amended to re remove that uh, authority uh, and having to have cases like this over a $700 patio dispute yeah. uh, wind up in two levels of judicial review all the way up to the Court of Appeal and back for a new hearing also utterly defeats the entire justification for trying to have a, a streamlined, easy-to-use dispute uh, mechanism. It just runs contrary to the entire uh, scheme of it uh, and just points out the absurdity of that. Uh, provision to begin with. Michael Mulligan, we have less than 60 seconds left in today's uh, segment. There's always more to say on these matters, though. Anything else you want to touch on? No, I think that uh, that probably covers it uh, for this week. Um, I, I can provide a brief answer. There was an earlier caller yes. who called in with a question about prosecution of drug offenses. Yes, yes. Um, the way that uh, ordinarily uh, the prosecution of offenses would be, most offenses under the criminal code would be prosecuted by the Provincial Prosecution Service. Mm -hmm. However, uh, prosecutions for uh, alleged uh, drug trafficking under the uh, uh, CDSA would be prosecuted federally. So we actually have the federal government doing prosecutions for uh, drug offenses. The, uh, the real takeaway with that, though, is we've been trying that for years and years, everything we can possibly muster, and uh, you will have to swim mightily if you wish to try to go up the river of economic supply and demand. Um, and all we really manage to do uh, is to drive up the cost of such things, which produces more social disorder like um, shoplifting and prostitution and robberies and this sort of thing. Uh, we've tried for many years to try to stop people from buying uh, drugs that are going to kill them, yeah. uh, never with uh, a much success, and we cause uh, great harm, in my view, uh, in the trying. We, we drive people to uh, engage in conduct that's very harmful to them and very harmful to other members of the public uh, in a probably futile effort to stop them from doing really serious harm to themselves. So mm. I, I do think there's much to be rethought there, uh, but as it currently stands, it's the federal government busily uh, prosecuting people and waiting for uh, general and specific deterrence to kick in, uh, and uh, by that means deter somebody from engaging in conduct which there is already subjecting you to the risk of death. So I think we've got an uphill battle there, but that's what we continue to do. Here we go, caller. The moral of the story, if you have a legal question, ask a real lawyer like Michael Mulligan. Mo Michael, thank you for the benefit of your wisdom, as always. Thank you so much for having me. Stay right. safe and have a great day. You too. Have a great day.